Well, it's been estimated that at the time that 1 Timothy was written, the Roman Empire had up to and nearly 60 million slaves. 60 million slaves. That is the, basically, roughly the entire population of Texas and California combined. And so obviously with 60 million slaves, that, prevents millions, or that presents with us with a situation of also having millions and millions of slave owners. So the Roman Empire is just covered in slavery. Slaves and slave owners all over the Roman Empire. And so logically we would assume that as Christianity starts to spread throughout the Roman Empire and thousands and thousands of people are coming to Christ that we now have an awkward situation where slaves and slave owners are coming to Christ and maybe even worshiping in the same church. So how do we deal with this awkward situation in the first century where churches might be just littered with slaves and slave owners alike? How does the gospel, how does Paul in his New Testament faith and his revelations of God, how do we deal and address this situation. Well, that's kind of what we're looking at. If you would turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 6. We've been working through Paul's section of honoring different classes or different groups of people in your church, and we know he began with widows. We just ended a long section on honoring your pastors, and we get, as 21st century Americans, to study today this, from our cultural perspective, probably uncomfortable possibly confusing, maybe even painful idea that Paul is now going to command us to honor our residential slave owners. We honor widows, we honor pastors, and we honor slave owners. Well, let's look more deeply as to how Paul specifically addresses this situation, this first century situation, beginning in chapter 6. Look with me at verses 1 and 2. I ask that you would please read along, for these are the very words of God. Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Well, we're going to just look at those uh, two small, relatively small verses with our time this morning. And I think what we're going to look at is we're going to look at what those verses mean, which is really the point of any sermon, right? What is the text saying? What does the text mean? But every once in a while, we stumble upon particular topics and subjects that have some kind of relationship to our cultural setting where I think it's incumbent upon the preacher to do more than just talk about what the text means, but to talk about what it doesn't mean. Again, that can be a, a fruitless endeavor if we did it every single sermon. Ultimately, the point of biblical exposition is to exposit the text. What is the text saying? But this is a controversial topic, and it's, and it's sort of rearing its head in our cultural milieu today again. And so I think it's important for us to not only be reminded of what the text means, what it's saying, but also what it's not saying. 
And I think that as we put those two things together, then we're going to sort of move toward a larger spiritual principle and application that I think will be beneficial for all of us. So that's kind of the course, the journey, the road we are going to travel this morning. So let's just first, what is Paul saying? Let's make sure we comprehend and understand these two verses. Paul begins by saying, let all who are under a yoke... Now, the ESV renders this word bondservant. So you might have another text that says the word more explicitly, slave. And I think we're going to talk about this more in a minute. But the Greek word doulos is the Greek word that we have for slavery. But what modern English translations have done is they've recognized the bias that we have towards that word. And especially as English, or forgive me, as Americans, we have one view of slavery in mind. And we tend to impute that anytime we see the word slave. But the problem is the word doulos is used very liberally throughout Scripture to describe uh, situations that may not be exactly alike. So in the modern translations, they will oftentimes put something like slave in one context or bond servant or maybe even something else to try to bring out the meaning a little bit better. Uh, but we can see contextually here that whether the, your Bible says slave or bond servant or maybe something else, we're talking about somebody who is owned by a master. Somebody who is, in fact, enslaved to a master. And Paul says that those slaves, those who are under the yoke of slavery, those who are under the yoke as being bondservants, they are to regard their own masters of worthy of all honor. They are to honor. Now, this means that they are not only to honor them in their conduct, but Paul is really calling them here to recognize their authority. They are to honor them in their mind too. They are to recognize that these are people who have a rightful authority and I am called to recognize that and then treat them accordingly. They are called to honor in both their behavior and recognition. And we can imagine what the temptation would be. We know that verse 1, Paul is specifically addressing slaves who are Christians, but their masters are not. And why do we know that? Because in verse 2, he makes that qualifier, those who have believing masters. So that tells us that the first point we're looking at is, you're a Roman slave, you come to know Christ, and now you're in this weird position where a pagan, a heathen, someone who hates Jesus, who has no knowledge or love for Christ, has an incredible amount of authority over you. And so the temptation, especially in this new religion, is to think, They shouldn't have this authority over me. They're pagans. There is one Lord, and he is Jesus Christ. Well, how can I as a Christian allow a non-Christian to tell me what to do? That's just got mess written all over it. So there's a temptation for possible rebellion, a possible uh, ignoring of duties or responsibilities, and Paul very counterintuitively says, no. I get that they're pagans. I get that they're heathens but you must honor them. You are called to honor them. Now, here's what's so fascinating is it amazes me how in all of the commentaries that I've read and how even throughout my life when slavery and texts like this are brought up, what people are so quick to jump to is a very real historical fact about how brutal uh, the Romans were towards rebellious slaves. Now, this is true. I mean, think about it for a minute. You're uh, leading in the Roman Empire. You're you're high up in, in, in the ranks. And you realize that the entire state of California and the entire state of Texas put together, that's a pretty substantial army. 
That's a significant rebellion. So you need to do everything in your power to make sure that these people don't come together and resist you. Because then you've got trouble on your hands. So Rome, what they did to prevent that was Rome was brutal. They were ruthless. With any slave, the first signs of, 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 of fomenting insurrection, if you will. They, they had to make an example so that people were afraid of Rome to rebel. And so you'll find people talking all the time about that's the logic here. Paul knows that, you know, slavery's terrible and then being slaves to heathens, that's terrible. But what's the alternative? If, if they try to rebel or if they try to, to, to neglect their duties, the Roman Empire is going to squash them and now the, the Christian movement doesn't have its legs under it anymore. Now, that might even, that's probably true. But here's what's fascinating. Paul does not appeal to fear of the Romans as his line of argumentation. That's not what he says. Paul's not afraid of them. He does not say, listen, you need to honor your masters because if we don't, <laughs> Rome will squash us and we need you. Paul was not applying pragmatism here. He was not saying, listen, we're in big trouble if we try to start a fight with Rome. We can't win that fight, so let's go a more practical route. Paul does not provide a pragmatic reason for why unbelieving slaves are still under responsibility to honor and respect their unbelieving slave owners. And Paul's line of reasoning for that is found in the second part of verse 1. You are to regard your own masters as worthy of all honor so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Paul's not concerned with Rome's weaponry. He's concerned with the Christian's reputation. Paul is far more concerned with what insubordination and rebellion looks like. To Paul, how we as Christians, the way our actions and behaviors reflect Jesus Christ and reflect his teaching is what's important here. The way we behave in public matters. It says something about our God. It says something about Christ Jesus our Lord. It says something about our very church that we represent in the community. How we behave in public matters. Paul's not afraid of, 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 of Roman uh, swords and death. He's afraid of Christians. Because remember, this is a brand new movement. I mean, we know theologically it's not, right? The Christian faith goes back to Abraham. So we know that theologically this is a line. But from the Roman perspective, this is a brand new faith, a brand new religion, and first impressions matter. And what Paul doesn't want people to see is, is the Romans have heard about this Christian faith, which is based upon this Messiah who talked about loving our enemies and treating people with love. And, and, and they claim that they're not against authority and they claim that they're, that they're not insubordinate. Yet every one of these Christian slaves is insubordinate. Paul says that for slaves to rebel or treat their masters with disrespect in some way, shape, or form makes Jesus look less glorious than he deserves to look, and it makes the Christian faith look less glorious than it deserves to look. Paul's point essentially is that God has not called us to be a rebellious, anti-authoritative, disrespectful people. Christians are called to be people who respect authority, who honor and submit to authority even when they don't deserve it. 
And that is Paul's point. Because obviously, as we know that, even though he doesn't say this explicitly here, unbelieving masters were probably far more prone, and I I say probably guaranteed, were far more prone to be violent and uncharitable and unfair in their position than the Christian masters were. And so here we have Paul essentially telling these slaves that even when you have unbelieving, violent, unfair masters... You make Christ look more glorious when you respond with honor and respect. Paul is essentially telling slaves something that is a constant theme throughout the New Testament, which is that it's actually in persecution, it's actually in violence, in injustice, in unfairness, that the gospel has the greatest opportunity to shine forth its glory. John Piper, one of the things that made him so famous was he he constantly was... um, talking about this expression that he had where he essentially said that God looks most glorified in us when he is all sufficient to us in the midst of loss, not prosperity. And what's his point? His point is essentially what we see in the book of Job, right? Job loves God more than any other person on earth. He's the holiest man on earth. And what does Satan say? God says, have you considered Job? how he loves me and serves me better than anyone else. And what's Satan's response? Of course Job loves you. Look at what you've done for him. He's, he's, he's also the richest man on earth. You don't think there's some correlation there? Yeah, he loves you more than anyone on earth because you've blessed him more than anyone on earth. And that's why Job's, or forgive me, that's why Satan's response is take it away and we'll see what Job thinks about you. And so the whole dilemma through the book of Job is, is God sufficient for me when I have nothing? And when we show that to the world, that is the most powerful apologetic we can offer. It's more powerful than any debate. It's more powerful than any line of argumentation. When we can show people Christ is sufficient to me when I have nothing else, that is when Jesus looks glorious. And we know that because that was Jesus' gospel. Holiness Respect, honor, love, even when being persecuted. Keep your marker here and turn to 1 Peter. Peter is actually the one who makes this connection between the way Christ, the way he responded to injustice and unfairness and persecution. That is what we as Christians must also do. And he links that to the very issue of slaves honoring their masters. 1 Peter chapter 2, begin with me in verse 18. The word doulos is used yet again here, although the ESV renders it something different. Verse 18, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. You see, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. 
He himself bore our sins in his body on that tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. You see that connection Peter makes? Peter says, slaves, servants, bondservants, even when you have cruel and unjust masters, you should consider them with love and respect. Why? Because when you do that in the midst of their cruelty, you follow in Christ's footsteps, suffering evil, and this is a gracious thing to God, and it makes God look glorious. That you can mistreat me and abuse me all you want. I will love you. I will pray for you. I will respect you. And I will even submit to your rightful authority. It's countercultural. It's difficult. But this is Christ's example. This is the example he set. And so we go back to our text in 1 Timothy. Paul says, here's the first way we deal with this awkwardness. Slaves, if you've got an unbelieving master who's not here in church with you, you have an obligation to them. And you need to honor them. You need to serve them and you need to consider them worthy of honor even when they are unbelieving. But then the question becomes, okay, well, what about believing masters? Because obviously we can't control the unbelievers, right? They're, they don't love the Lord. They don't consider the church an authority. So we can't make them stop beating their slaves. We can't make them be fair. We can't make them set their slaves free. But we can do that with Christians. We, we can control the slave owners among us. So how does Paul deal with that? It says in verse 2, those who have believing masters must not be dis disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. So Paul says the same thing that goes for the non-Christians goes for the Christians as well. It, this likewise would be a temptation. The temptation for slaves would be different. Maybe not insurrection and violence and, and rebellion, but maybe the temptation is more like, you know, taking someone for granted. Because, I mean, after all, he's, he's a Christian. What's he going to do? You know, for, for example, I, I, just because he's not here, I, I know that Bill Hartman does not like when I single him out, but uh, I'm going to do it. Bill Hartman is my landlord. This, is, this would be some, a similar methodology to me and Layla sitting in our room being like, you know what? We're not going to pay rent. I mean, Bill's, he's my pastor. He's my elder. Forgive me, he's my elder. Right? I, you know, he's, he's going to be gracious. He's going to be forgiving. And, and honestly, he's a Christian, so maybe he should just do me a solid. That would be me taking advantage of his Christian faith. That's me taking advantage of him on the grounds that he's a brother. And Paul says, don't you dare. These slave owners who were Christians, their Christian slaves deserve to give them respect and not take advantage of them because they had Christ in common. As a matter of fact, he says more than just what you give to unbelieving slave masters to Christians. He says, you should respect them all the more. Verse 2, he flips it completely on his head. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better. Since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. What's his point? These are your slave, this slave owner that is above you, you realize Jesus loves him. You realize Jesus died for him. That should give you even more motivation to treat him even better than you would your non-believing master. And this is consistent with the Christian faith. We won't turn there, but you can write down Galatians chapter 6, verse 10. And in Galatians, or, I, or forgive me, let me make sure I wrote that. That doesn't sound right. Yeah, Galatians 6, 10. He, we are told to honor and love all people, especially those of the household of faith. 
You see, when we deal with our neighbors, we're dealing with people who bear the image of God. And that's why we are to love them, even when they don't deserve it. That's why we are to be loved, even when we don't deserve it, because we bear God's image. But Christians have something more than the image of God. They now have union with Christ. They bear God's image, and they are part of the household of faith. And so they actually deserve more respect, more love. So Paul flips it on its head and says, not only is your Christian slave owner not give you the excuse to to take advantage and, and treat him disrespectfully, rather it actually doubles your obligation. Because those who benefit by your service are beloved. Because Jesus loves those people. And so you should too. That's why he finishes by telling them in the end of verse 2 to teach and urge these things. These are important things, likely referring to everything he just mentioned about widows, pastors, and slave owners, but possibly just here the slave owners. Paul is calling Timothy to teach and to urge these doctrines of honoring. Honor your widows, honor your pastors, and as weird as it is to say, honor your slave owners. Honor your masters. So really the summary of Paul's whole point here is that slaves honor Christ and the Christian faith by honoring their masters, especially the Christian ones. Slaves honor Christ and the Christian faith by honoring their masters, especially the Christian ones. Now, uh, there's no doubt that any time, at least in my life, you know, I'm really into Christian apologetics, which means defending the faith. And you don't even have to be into apologetics. If you've just lived in the world as a Christian for any amount of time, you've probably heard at some time in your life, somebody who has tried to reject the Christian faith on the basis of slavery. Slavery is a hot topic issue. And they'll say things like, well, how can I trust the Bible to be my moral guide? It got slavery wrong. So I, I can't trust anywhere else. The Bible doesn't even, the Bible's unjust when it comes to slavery. Why? Because the Bible endorses slavery. And so typically when we come to this passage of scripture, one of the, the ways that we sort of deflect the meaning is by making this all about Christian workplace environments. Right? That this is, this is dealing with Christian employers and Christian employees. Now, here's the thing. There's no doubt that the message here has direct application to that situation. Like, every good sermon needs to have clear application for us to take this sermon home and apply it, and that's our application, right? I'm assuming that no one in here is secretly a slave owner that I didn't know about, and I'm assuming that no one in here is a slave to someone. So how does this text have application? Well, we know that this has direct application to the workplace, You have masters in your work environments. You have people you are called to serve, and everything Paul says directly applies. If they're non-Christians, honor them. You you should make it your goal to to be the best employee in your entire company. Show your non-Christian masters that you want Christian employees were better. Honor them, serve them, work hard. And if you have Christian employers, don't take advantage of their Christianity, serve them doubly. This has direct application to the workplace. And one of the reasons I think that's fair is, again, we won't turn there, but you can write down in Matthew chapter 8, verse 9, this is when Jesus heals a slave owner's slave. 
and he's a Roman centurion, and he actually compares Jesus's role and his role to the slave's role. In other words, he says, I want you to heal my slave. And, and in that process, he says, because listen, he's under me, but I'm under others. Like I've got bosses, employees, and I know that you're a leader and you've got people under you. So he takes this word doulos and he applies it to slavery, employment, leadership. So I have no doubt in my mind that 1 Timothy 6 has direct application to the workplace environment. You might say, well, I'm a stay-at-home mom. You're a homemaker. You still, according to the Bible, have an authority over you and your husband. And even if you're retired and you have no husband, as Peter says, ultimately all of us are in service to who? To the Lord. Every one of us has service to somebody and we as Christians honor that and we work hard in that and this has application to that. But here's why I talked about I want us to focus in a little bit on what this text does not say because here's the issue. While this text does have direct application to the employment world, that's not ultimately what he's talking about. In other words, what I'm saying is that cannot completely deflect what's going on here. It's not an, an accurate or true apologetic to say, well, the Bible doesn't endorse slavery, 1 Timothy 6, about employment. Well, it implies to employment, but that, that's, that's not what's going on here. This, this is about slavery. As a matter of fact, uh, one of the first things I want us to see is one of these things that the text does not tell us is that slavery, now make sure you're sitting down, is not inherently sinful. The institution of slavery is not an inherently sinful institution. What do I mean by that? Well, I mean essentially this. Slavery can be done right. If slavery was, if the institution of slavery was always and everywhere sinful, then what Paul here is saying is sinful. Paul cannot encourage slave owners to continue in their sin. What verse 2 should have said was, now if you've got Christian slave owners, you need to remind them it's a sin to be a slave owner, so set you free. But he does not call the slave owners to set their slaves free. Slavery can be done right. Which tells us that, again, the institution of slavery in its general sense is not sinful. If you're looking for more justification of that, just read through the book of Exodus. In the book of Exodus, we have Yahweh prescribing and legislating the institution of slavery for his people. He says, you can do this, you should do this, and here's the boundaries, here's the lanes, and how you do it. If we go into the world and we try to make the case that the Bible condemns slavery in every form, in every culture, at any time, we're lying about the Bible. Slavery is not an inherently wicked situation. Again, another biblical proof, you can read the book of Philemon. It's a small little book in your New Testament, and the whole book is about a slave who is under Philemon, who ran to Paul to figure out this dispute between them and Paul has nothing but love for Philemon. Paul, he writes back to Philemon, he loves him, he addresses him as a brother, he never says, grits his teeth, you wicked slave owner. He loves him. I, I want us to wrestle with this fact. According to the New Testament, a slave owner is capable of being a member in good standing in one of Paul's local churches. 
You could be a slave owner like Philemon and be a member in good standing of the church. Slavery in and of itself is not something that we could practice church discipline on. Rather, what Paul, and we're going to get to more of this in a minute, what Paul here is concerned with is how you conduct your slave ownership. But again, the institution in and of itself is not wicked. And the reason this is so important is because we see this in our culture. For example, I, I don't get the impression that as many people in Redeemer Christian Fellowship are as, and, and I mean this in a very good way, I promise. I don't get the impression that many of you are as, as, as glued to like the, the, the cultural and social issues of the day as I am. So, so you may not have very much memory of this and that's okay. But if you do recall, there was a bunch of drama not but a year or two ago where people were going around the country wanting to take down all of these statues and monuments outside of public facilities because the statues, it turned out, they were slave owners. And one of the things people love to do is they love to come crashing down all of your excitement over people in history that you love by sort of opening up the closet and showing you that slavery skeleton in there. Like, for example, a lot of, a lot of Americans love George Washington, right? How can you not? Like, he's like the ultimate symbol of American patriotism, first president, war hero, Christian man, slave owner. He owns slaves. So does that automatically make him wicked? And it doesn't just happen in the secular world. It happens in the Christian world too. In the Reformed tradition specifically, we've got these great American preachers. You hear about George Whitfield, for example. Man, George Whitfield was a, an evangelist and a preacher, one of the greatest American theologians, but you're not allowed to like him. Slave owner. George Whitfield owned slaves. And so we have painted a picture in our minds that says, if you're a slave owner, you are automatically a sinner. That's always, everywhere, always bad. But the Bible disagrees. Now, these men may have been wicked sinners. I'm not saying they weren't. But just the fact of them being slave owners does not indict them right away. Because Philemon was just fine. And the slave owners in Ephesus were just fine. The reason that this is, I think, so difficult for us to swallow and to comprehend is because, as I said at the beginning, we have a very, very narrow, limited view of what slavery is and how it's played out in world history. When we, as 21st century Americans, think of slavery, we think of the transatlantic slave trade and the, slavery, the southern slavery in the south in our history. And here's the good news. The Bible does condemn that practice. The Bible is very clear all throughout the Old and New Testament that, for example, in the book of Exodus, it was a capital crime to kidnap someone. If you kidnap someone, you died. The entire transatlantic slave trade was almost exclusively based on stealing people. The Bible does not condone that. As a matter of fact, turn back just briefly to 1 Timothy chapter 1. Paul gives one, another one of his famous sort of sin lists where he sort of nuggets a bunch of sins together when he describes false teachers and unbelieving men. And there's an interesting one, I, I don't know what your different translations say, but verse 10 says, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, and then the ESV puts here, enslavers. 
And it has a little footnote that says that is someone who takes someone captive to sell them. That's why some of your more literal literal translations might just put the word kidnappers here. Kidnapping is sinful and it's wicked. Kidnapping is inherently sinful and you are a sinner if you do it and you need to repent if you're a kidnapper. So here's the mistake that people make because the Bible at some places condones forms of slavery, therefore all slavery is condoned by the Bible. And that's just not true. The slavery that happened in America was foundationally different than almost every institution of slavery that had ever existed, even among some of the more brutal ones. For example, Roman slavery was not (laughs) race-based. And even Rome, who Rome is notorious for their barbarism, not just in slaves, just in general as a culture, Rome was a barbaric culture. I I, I make this comment all the time. I, I talk to people about how probably the most violent thing that Americans spend money on is mixed martial arts. MMA, the octagon. Like people actually spend money to go to an auditorium where two grown men, and unfortunately oftentimes grown women, will put padded gloves on and will beat each other up until someone forces them to stop. That sounds pretty barbaric to me, but guess what? That's a pillow fight compared to what people spent their money on in Rome. You realize that in the gladiator rings, They would crucify Christians, including women and children, and people would pay good money to go watch that. Can you imagine paying money to watch a child be crucified? That was their culture. The gladiator rings themselves, they would kidnap people and force them to fight animals and soldiers. It It was brutal. People would pay money for it. This was a brutal, barbaric culture, and even they had a system of slavery far more empathetic, kind, and gracious than what we experience here in America. It was not uncommon for Roman slaves to be well-educated, to own their own businesses, and to have slaves underneath them. For a lot of people in Rome, slavery was a good gig. It wasn't a bad gig. On top of that, it gets even better when you read through the Old Testament and you see the kind of slavery that God gave us. Those slaves, you realize, in the Old Testament weren't allowed to be slaves longer than six years. Seventh year, they had to be set free. And they were protected all over the place by God's law from violence and injustice. And we even have a provision in God's law, get this, in the Old Testament, there's even a provision that says you must set them free unless they don't want to be. (laughs) Slavery was such a good deal. It literally saved lives to that culture. It was such a good deal for that culture that God actually had to make a law saying, now listen, if you want to stay, you're welcome to. This sounds horrible if we take southern slavery and impute it to every passage in the Bible that says something about servants, bond servants, or slaves. The Bible doesn't condone sin. But slavery is not, in all places and all times, an inherently sinful institution. It can be done right. However, I'm gonna, that leads us to something that might sound a bit more contradictory, but I would still argue this, that although slavery is not necessarily sinful, I do think that it's clear that slavery is not God's ideal. I don't think God desires slavery in the culture. We don't have slavery anymore, and uh, I, I think we can say amen to that. One of the reasons I say that is because of what we talked about. In the book of Exodus, God commanded that slaves be set free. So obviously that's God's ultimate goal for them is freedom. 
And we see this in, you, again, you don't have to turn there, but in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 21, Paul tells slaves to accept their slavery and to be good slaves, but he says, if you find chance for freedom, take it. Take it. If there's a legal, lawful way for you to be free, you should take it. So what we see is, I don't think it's fair to say the Bible endorses slavery because I think the overall trajectory of the scriptures is moving toward abolishing it. Slavery is not God's ideal, even though it's not ultimately always sinful. But ultimately, it is God, it is Paul's desire that you would be free. And that societies would be free. And so here's really the way I want us to think of the Bible in terms of its approach to slavery. The Bible is not an abolitionist book. The Bible is an incrementalist book. Paul, when it comes to slavery, was not an abolitionist. He was an incrementalist. Now, what does that mean? Abolition means end it right here, right now. Like on the issue of abortion, I'm an abolitionist. End it right here, right now. I don't want to legislate it. I don't want, I want it to be ended when it comes to slavery, Paul was not an abolitionist. Paul's point, he, he addresses slaves more than he addresses marriages. Paul, has, Paul, Paul addresses it in here in 1 Timothy, in Colossians, in Ephesians. Paul loved to talk about this issue. And never once in any of those in Philemon did he ever call for slavery to be abolished. He was not an abolitionist in that sense. But I do think that Paul is what we call an incrementalist. He wanted slavery to be ended, but there was an incremental, step-by-step, peaceful way this could be done. Paul didn't want, like we did with the Civil War, for example, for us to take up arms and fight a war over slavery. Rather, Paul's perspective was that the gospel itself could almost serve as a good virus which infects this thing and kills it from the inside out. Uh, one Christian writer says this, Paul's revolutionary Christian affirmations helped to tear apart the fabric of the institution of slavery in Europe. Like yeast, such Christ-like living could have gradual leavening effect on society so that oppressive institutions like slavery could finally fall away. In other words, if we were to apply the gospel, Christian living, Old Testament principles to every institution of slavery, over time those institutions would not be there. The gospel would slowly, I mean, can you imagine? It's, it's hard to even understand what slavery is when you've got two Christians involved obeying biblical law. It's, it's hard to even distinguish that from a lot of our other relationships, <laughs> When you have two Christians loving each other, respecting each other, taking care of one another, it's hardly even slavery at that point. And so I think what we see, not only in Scripture, but even in world history, and the nations that abolished slavery without a civil war, we see it was ultimately the gospel and Christian men that brought ends to these institutions. So slavery is not God's ideal, even though it's not inherently sinful or Wicked, And I think that as the gospel permeates a culture, as the gospel permeates slave owners and slaves alike, and as the biblical laws in Old and New Testament are applied to it, that over time, slavery is an impossible institution to keep going. So I do think it was Paul's point to abolish slavery, but not in the way that modern 21st century Americans want him to. We want him to stand up and shake his fist and say, this is sinful, stop it right now. But Paul had a different way a way that respected the Old Testament 
and that believed there was power in the gospel. And this is hopeful for us because what does that tell you? In our own societal injustices, in our own institutions that we disagree with, we don't have to put our hope in politicians. We don't have to put our hope in legislation. We don't have to put our hope in taking up arms and fighting. We can put our hope in the gospel to transform a society from the inside out. But here's what I think I want us to really take away, if I can, this whole concept of slavery. And as we look at slavery, and it can be uncomfortable, and it can be difficult, but I want us to be reminded of something, that the human institution of slavery, the Bible uses it as an analogy to remind us of something, of a very real spiritual reality. And it's the title of my sermon, that everyone's a slave. Human slavery can be abolished, but slavery itself can't be. You will never abolish slavery. Slavery is what we call an inescapable concept. It's inescapable. Every person you have ever talked to or ever will talk to is a slave. Every one of us. Turn, if you will, in your Bibles back to 1 Peter chapter 2. The same passage we read, only we're going to read a little bit earlier. Look at verse 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as slaves to God. Servants to God. Even Christian people who are free, like everyone in this room, is ultimately a slave. This point is made even more clear if you'll turn to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6, we're going to start at verse 15. To set the context here, Paul is talking about, he just got done explaining that we are saved by grace and not by works. We're no longer judged by the law. We are now judged in Christ. He's talking about how we are saved apart from our works, apart from our sin. It's by faith and faith alone. And so the natural question that people would raise up is, so I get to live however I want to then, right? I mean, I'm not under the law, and no matter what I do, God still saves me, so I can just do whatever I want. And that's what Paul's going to address. And look at chapter 6, verse 15. What then, are we to sin because we are not under the law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves to sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness." According to the Bible, the way that you find your freedom is by becoming a slave. According to the Bible, if you want to be free, you need to be a slave. Because the Bible recognizes that on a spiritual level, slavery is inescapable. 
You who were once slaves to sin have become set free to be autonomous and do whatever you want. No. We've exchanged our slavery. We've gone to a better master. Sin is a cruel, harsh master. And our desire is not to be free, but to find a better master. You who were once slaves to sin have become slaves of righteousness. Verse 19, I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. When we think of slavery, we think of it as a human institution, but it's also a metaphor for our spiritual condition. And Paul says there are two kinds of slavery. Slaves to sin, slaves to the devil, or slaves to righteousness, slaves to God. But everyone's a slave. Everyone you talk to, everyone you meet, is either serving a sinful master or a righteous master. But we are all under authority. We are all enslaved to something, and the fruit of the gospel is that it has freed us, not from slavery in general, but it hasn't freed us from being enslaved, enslaved to someone we don't want to be enslaved to, to be enslaved to things we don't want to be enslaved to. This is, I think, why, in conclusion, and, and Paul began 1 Timothy 6 by talking about those who were under the yoke of slavery. And every time I hear that word, I can't help but think of the book of Matthew when Jesus says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. Why? For my yoke is light, and my burdens are easy. You see, Jesus does not call us to be yoke-free. We're under the yoke of burden and brokenness and sin, or we're under Christ's yoke. But we are all yoked to something. We are all enslaved to something. And so I want, I want to call you that whenever we read about slavery in the Bible, never let those passages cross your mind without remembering that in the gospel, we've become enslaved to God.